Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. You're on Saturday Magazine with me, Nevena, and my co-host, Maka. You just heard from... Chief Political Correspondent Michelle Grattan talking all things politics and society. Maka, who's our next guest? Our next guest is uh, Neil Farrow. And Neil is uh, well known, uh, you know, a proud member of our community, but well known to our community as a, a public policy advocate and uh, works pretty hard in, in around the community on a whole lot of issues. We're going to talk this morning about the wrap-up or what were the outcomes from COP27. Neil, was it, a, was it a cop out or was it COP27? <laughs> oh, look, I think uh, you win some and you lose some at COP27. So it was definitely a mixed bag, but I think uh, it was a, a very interesting experience being an LGBTI activist in, in Egypt for COP27 this mm. year. That, that in itself, you know, being an LGBTI activist in Egypt, uh, <laughs> I'm glad it was you, not me. <laughs> Neil, can you explain to us what is COP and how does it impact Australia? So look, COP is got a very long name and a, a lot of acronyms involved in it. But the long and the short of it is COP27 is where a whole heap of countries uh, and NGOs and business from around the world come together once a year to assess and have a look at what commitments they're making over climate change, how they can deal and implement commitments from previous COPs and what are the next steps and journeys in relation to our climate change activities globally. And, and this year was the 27th COP. It was held in a resort town on the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt called Sharm el-Sheikh. Um, and there was about 50,000 people globally represented at COP. So you have business and you have government and you have civil society and sort of everybody else in between. Um, it's probably uh, best to give an example of somewhere between like a fair day and a um, carnival sort of event for bits of it. And at the same time, sort of a big political drama around what the actual votes and governments are doing on the floor. So, Neil, how much of you know of the outcome of of this of, of this uh, get together was pretty much decided beforehand? I mean, had you know, there's a lot of discussion, a lot of debate, uh, a lot of impassioned debate, but at the end of the day, the decisions that, and the commitments that came out of it, so many of them were effectively pre or decided well before the event, weren't they? So look, COP goes on for about two weeks each year and it's usually around November, December and it rotates through the different United Nations regions. So this year was in Africa. Um, and what happens as part of that is Egypt, who was the host country this year, is chair of the COP framework. So Egypt tries to set up a specific agenda and a specific campaign. The most interesting side of it for this year's COP is while some things are decided, so you know this was considered an implementation COP as opposed to setting new ambitions and goals like Glasgow was last year, there was actually a lot of issues that went right down the wire. So COP actually ran over time this year, particularly around a provision that's called loss and damage. And loss and damage is the concept that um, the developed world, so Australia, the US, um, those sorts of countries, have historically made a bigger contribution to climate change and yet the impact of climate change is now 
adversely impacting the developing world even harder than the developed world. And so the the big tension for this year's COP was, will, will loss and damage happen and what does it mean? And so while there are elements that were definitely sort of pre-approved and, and orchestrated, there was definitely tension right up into sort of the two days of the overrun of COP around what loss and damage looks like, who's involved, who should pay for it, what are the responsibilities and, and everything in between. So it's... It, it's a little bit preordained, but as I said, it came right down to the wire around some big issues this year. Neil, speaking of tension, there were several media outlets reporting that there was surveillance going on at civil society members at COP. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because that was, you know, quite shocking to read about. It was. And look, um, you've got to put this in the context that, that Egypt has 65,000 political prisoners in jail, um, that it's effectively run by a dictatorship, you know, civil society is not particularly free in Egypt generally. LGBTI or being LGBTI is illegal in Egypt um, and, and it's a very inaccessible space. So to get to Sharm el-Sheikh, I had to fly to Cairo and then jump on a plane and, and drive in and fly into Sharm el-Sheikh. It's in the middle of the desert, so it's very hard to get there by road. And the most interesting side of it around the surveillance monitoring is the Egyptian app that comes with the summit that everybody was meant to download, the COP27 app. Um, when that was reverse engineered by a number of technicians, it actually realised that it was monitoring phones, it was monitoring your location, it was monitoring where you were at, potentially looking at the contents of your phone and everything in between. So there was a huge concern that effectively a government app for an international conference was downloaded onto a whole heap of phones, you know, overseas dignitaries, business folk, etc., etc., and that it, they were being monitored and surveilled as a result of that. And you could definitely tell while you're in Europe the pressure on civil society, even within what's called the blue zone, which is the United Nations secured zone. You know, there was very few civil society activists outside the zone. There was a couple of protests within the zone, um, but just due to the fear of repercussions of what happens in Egypt. And, and you've got a compounding, you know, there are a number of us who set up a, a LGBTI signal group um, and kind of supported each other through that process. But a number of delegations had issues with being followed or lack of security or transport. And, and look, it was a while there were some achievements around loss and jet damage, it was a really poorly organised summit. So, you know, for the first three or four days, no food, no water, no toilet paper, no soap. You know, it, it, I think on day three or day four, there was a river of sewage that started to run through the venue. Um, so it was a little bit of a challenge for everyone, location, country, logistics and practically, added to the fact that it was generally understood that the, Victor- uh, sorry, the um, Egyptian government was monitoring everything we were doing. And... The location where it was held is notoriously where Hosni Mubarak went after he was overthrown when he was, uh, in inverted commas, very ill. Um, And, you know, so it's a resort town, or ostensibly, but it's... I was wondering, you know, having it in in Egypt and obviously a country bids or countries, you know, put in a a proposal to host it. Um, It does concern me, though, you know, the surveillance... And the and seeing what people are doing and talking to and, and everything, uh, you know, governments are pretty good at that. But why do you think, you know, do you think the decision to have it in a place like Egypt was the right decision? Look, I think there was a lot of criticism and I think um, across civil society and government and business, it was widely regarded as possibly the worst organised and worst location a cop could be, right. <laughs> um, recognising that, you know, you're in the middle of a desert, you're six or seven hours drive from the nearest town. Um, it's a very weird sort of 
resort town, resort, I say that in inverted commas, um, kind of in the middle of nowhere, very badly organised. So, you know, I think there was a lot of concern that it was it was particularly bad for a cop summit. Um, so, yeah, it, it was sort of a very weird experience. But with that said, next year it's in Dubai. So, you know, oh. the reflection is, is it going to be... Is it going to be that much better? You know, you're in another country where being gay is illegal. You know, how are the consequences? I think at least Dubai, they'll manage it successfully. And, and Australia's bidding for COP in, in uh, COP31, which is uh, in a few years' time, three right. or four years' time. So there's an opportunity to bring it to the region, but it was particularly challenging. And, and the host country gets quite a few powers as part of the process, setting the agenda, guiding the discussions. But it also meant at this year's COP that we had more oil and gas lobbyists than the smallest 10 countries had as part of their delegation. So, you know, if you add up all of the Pacific Islander countries, which are the most affected by climate change and, and very small countries, you know, Tuvalu, I think, only has 20 or 30,000 people, for instance, their delegation of the 10 small Pacific Islander countries was actually smaller than the delegations from oil and gas. And there was a lot of discussion as well over Russia using it as a quasi-opportunity to sell their oil and gas under the guise of climate change. So I think there's some bigger concerns that appeared at Egypt will have long-term consequences for the climate agenda globally. It's not a very en- en- encouraging situation, is it, Neil? Because with so much of it pre-decided, and even though this one went over and you know there were probably some better outcomes than we could have hoped for, near enough is not good enough, is it? Uh, and you're dead right there, Mac. I think the big concern is we're very, we're very rapidly using up our quota of CO2 emissions to meet our 1.5 commitments. Mm. Um, we're way too fast and, and well and truly behind over keeping up to that. And so we really do need some big steps to try and uh, stop the climate change impact globally. I think, you know, the biggest positive from my perspective, though, out of that was it, the Australian government was present uh, and civil society was welcome and we weren't ostracised, you know, at Glasgow last year for COP, the Australia Pavilion could have been an advertisement for Santos, whereas this year it was much more welcoming to civil society. And Australia has a long way to catch up, obviously, on sort of nine or ten years of inaction on climate change globally, but at least we're back in the room. So I have hopes and aspirations we'll, we'll continue that journey. But, you know, it is a bit of a dire situation around climate, and I think everybody needs to step up and, and um, be a little bit more bold in this space. Um, you know, we've done this before. We successfully rid the world of chlorofluorocarbon. So we have got rid of, you know, dangerous gases in our air in the past. Um, I think we really need to step up again in this space now. So, Neil, what is the path ahead for Australia? You've just explained mm. to us now how there's been that big step change that's come with the change in federal government. What are the outcomes that you would like to see us take out yeah. nationally? So I think the biggest step change was um, just the urgency to which the Australian government has on these sorts of issues. So, you know, Chris Bowen was over there, Pat Conroy, Jenny McAllister, and all of them were pushing, obviously, that 43% commitments is Australia's floor and we need to do more and continuing to step up. I think the federal government definitely um, stepped up its ambitions and, and sort of wants to tick off everything it committed going into the last election. I think our state governments are doing a good job as well. Interestingly enough, Matt Keane, so the New South Wales Minister for Climate Change and the Treasurer, was over at COP for most of the time that I was over there as well. So even at a state Liberal Party level, you have ambition coming out of New South Wales around aspirations and change in this space. So I think the first step is Australia back in the room, and we're definitely back in the room after COP. We had some negotiating roles. You know, for the first time in nine years, Australia didn't win a fossil of the day at this year's uh, COP. 
So a fossil today is for the most obstructionistic or negative country uh, around the impacts of what's happened in in the summit for every day. Uh, and Australia's previously, every single COP for nine years has won fossil of the day. And on a number of occasions, we've won colossal fossil, which is like <laughs> the worst of the entire COP. Um, this year, we, we came out without a single fossil of the day, um, which is a, an unusual position. I think everyone's just hopeful that this trajectory will continue and, and that there's aspiration and hope going forward. And it's particularly interesting given our neighbours in the Pacific. So I spent a lot of time working with colleagues in the Pacific Islands. And, and, you know, this is literally their lives and their culture and their future. And it rests upon governments like Australia. Remembering Australia has one of the highest per capita emissions in the world, if not the highest. Um, and so, you know, we really need to step up and make that change. Otherwise, our neighbours in the Pacific aren't going to have a home. So, you know, it is personal and it is local. We're back in the room. I'd like to see a bit more aspiration and continue to push forward. There's things like the safeguard mechanisms coming into Parliament soon. Um, obviously, I have a view that we should stop uh, subsidising any form of gas or fossil fuels. But interestingly enough, even the changes recently in Australia um, that were passed in Parliament this week around gas is heading in the right direction over, you know, where, you know, if gas um, is being limited, then, you know, that's the next step we need to take, I think. Thank you very much, Neil. We were listening to Neil Farrow, civil society activist, social purpose uh, advocacy and public policy advocate. You heard all about the Fire Festival of COP, COP27. Thank you so much for joining us, Neil. It's great to be with you both again and um, wishing all listeners a very best for the festive season and new year and to you both as well. Thank you, mate. Thanks, much Neil. Much appreciated. You are on Saturday Magazine, Joy 94.9. Stay with us. Never and I will be back in a moment. And just remember, don't buy any of that hallucinogenic spinach. <laughs> Where do I get some, Akka? No, no, it makes you quite sick. But yeah, it, it's been contaminated a weed, not with weed. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy.